So Luke chapter 1, we're, we're in a series. This is the third Sunday in Advent. Just looking at some of the, the Christmas gospel accounts. And this is one of my favorite characters in the whole, in the whole scene. It's Mary. And I'm quite glad that, that Mike mentioned Mary earlier on when he was doing the, the welcome. I think Mary's an amazing character. And I think the church to some extent, has, has ran away from Mary a little bit because they're scared of, of being seen to be revering her or giving her too much honor or holding her up in a position that the Bible does not give to her. And then the, the church maybe runs in the opposite direction and ignores her completely. But she's an incredible character. And I want to just hold her up as the model of discipleship, of how we respond whenever God calls us to do things and calls us to, to lay down our future and, and what we want to do in order to respond to what he wants to do through us. So in Luke chapter 1, verse, hang on, let me get this, we're away. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now Nazareth is a nowhere town. If you watch the, new, the, the weather forecast on BBC News Northern Ireland, they put on, every time it's on, they put on these random little towns that you've never heard of. They hardly ever put on a big town or a city, but you'll have, you know, Knockclockram or something like that appearing in, on the map. Random, I've never been there, I've never heard of it, but now I know that it exists. Nazareth was one of those towns that would have made the BBC map. That's the only thing it would ever have made because it was just nowhere. It was a backwater in the hills in the middle of nowhere. And Nathaniel actually in John chapter 1 said to Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It is just the back end of nowhere. And I think one of the myths that we sometimes believe regarding God using us and Jesus having his way in us is that we have to reposition ourselves to get his attention. If I want to make it in life, I've got to get out of this crummy little town and I've got to get to the big city. I've got to get myself out there in a place where I can be noticed. And I think to a certain extent, we do need to position ourselves spiritually in order to, to, to get God's attention and in order to be available to him. But we don't need to leave where we are and go somewhere else to be more noticeable. 
Mary didn't need to leave Nazareth and move to Jerusalem for God to take notice of her and to use her. She stayed where she was. And God can find you in your humdrum life. Sometimes we get frustrated in our jobs and and, and we maybe feel we're not having much influence and we'd like to do something different. God can use us right where we are in the boring routine of wherever it is. Wherever you're going to drag yourself out of bed tomorrow morning and go to, God can use you there. You don't need to leave that behind and find something else that you think will give you more prominence. Mary had no prominence and Nazareth had no prominence. And there's a lovely verse further on in in Luke chapter 1 after Mary has sang her song. It says in verse 56 that she stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then returned home. Returned home. I love that. This incredible call of God on Mary to do this amazing thing that only one human being in all of history could do. And she went home. She didn't feel the need to somehow change everything and leave her home and move somewhere else and and raise her status. She took the call of God on her life and she went home. And she got on with her normal life. She got on with whatever she did every day. As the, as the call of God grew within her. Don't be itchy to get away from where you are. Because he can use you where you are. So Nazareth was a, a nowhere place. And Mary was a nobody. You see artwork a lot of the time. In churches and in museums. Pictures of Mary that are an absolute misrepresentation of her. They represent Mary as being in her 30s. Uh, rather unattractive, might I say, uh, sitting on a throne with a crown or a halo and wearing fancy embroidered clothes that usually involve the color blue. I can't remember the reason for that, but there is a reason. And this, this baby sitting on her lap, you know, doing something like, like, like that as he sits there blessing the gathered people that are around about. This outrageous sort of representation of who she was. And who her baby was, as if he could change his own nappies and never, never sort of made any messy mistakes at the dinner table. Mary was about 14, and Joseph was about 30. Now try that on in your nativity play and see how it flies. Right? Get, one of your, get one of your P7s to play Mary and get the caretaker to play Joseph and see what the, how the crowd <laughs> respond, because that's a wee bit closer to the truth of what it was like. She was poor. She was poor. She wasn't wearing embroidered fancy cloth. She was poor, probably dressed in rags. Whenever they went to the temple after Jesus had been born, the only offering they could afford was a couple of turtle doves. That was allowed in the law. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could bring a couple couple of birds as your offering to the temple. And how ironic is it that the lamb of God grew inside her womb? And she brought him to birth and brought him to the temple. And she had him with her. But she couldn't afford the lamb that was required for the temple sacrifice. And she brought a couple of birds. She was poor. But she had favor with God. It says that she, said that the angel told her in verse 30, you have found favor with God. Why did she have favor with God? She could not have been any more unqualified for what she was doing. God chose her, not because of anything she had done, but because he is good. He doesn't pick a wealthy, successful young woman in an important town. He picks a nobody in the hills in the middle of nowhere. 
See, religion is about what you do to earn God's favor. People ever sort of pitch at you and say Christianity is just another religion. It's not. It's profoundly different. Religion and every religious structure on earth is about what you do to earn the favor of a God. Whereas Christianity is about the favor of God being poured out on us in spite of what we have done. We don't earn it and we don't deserve it. And he comes and he lavishes it upon, it, upon us. So we have this poor woman who has no qualifications, no education, probably couldn't write. And another myth, you know, the first myth is that you have to reposition yourself to get God's attention. You have to leave where you are to follow the call of God. The, sec- the second myth is that you're not qualified to be used by God. That's the greatest lie the devil copes about the place in the church. That you're not qualified, that you cannot be used by God. Because you don't have the education, you don't have the training or whatever, and therefore he cannot use you. And we say that that we're not intelligent enough, that we're not popular enough, we don't have enough influence, we don't have enough money, we we, we have all of these reasons in our mind why we can't serve him, we can't do what he calls us to do. God does not pick pick, pick you because of who you are and what you can do. He picks you because of who he is and what what he can do. Not who you are. It's so important to not allow that to hold you back from following following the, the, the call of God. Don't ever get distracted by your inability and don't ever get distracted by your ability because sometimes the other the opposite can happen where you start to feel, well, I'm really qualified to do this. And then you get into an even more dangerous place. Inadequacy is a wonderful feeling. Embrace it. Welcome it. Inadequacy is brilliant. Inad- you know, when you get a, a job description, there will be criteria for the job. There'll be desirable criteria and there'll be essential criteria. And one of the essential criteria for any ministry in the kingdom of God is inadequacy. A real strong awareness of your own inadequacy. You say, I can't. And God says, that's good. I can. But until you say, I can't, you're really limiting what God can do through you. Until you really come to that awareness of your insignificance, you cannot embrace what he wants to do through you. So in some little village out in the hills in the middle of nowhere, God calls this poor little girl to birth his son through her. And it's the way things happen throughout history. You look through the New Testament and you look through the history of the church and you will find the vast majority of people that God has used to turn the world upside down have been unqualified, poorly educated, not popular, not able to wield much influence, but yet he has used them. He loves to take the weak things to confound the ways. He loves to take the foolish things to confound the strong. The way he has redeemed us is through a cross, the picture of weakness and foolishness. And he has used that to redeem us. So do not think that because of your humble position, your lack of experience, your lack of education, your lack of polished ability to speak or whatever, that God cannot use you. He can And he delights to do it because he gets all the glory. And the birth that was going to follow would be a miraculous birth. In the Old Testament, you read through all of these miraculous pregnancies time and time and time again. God never really does things the easy way. Sarah, the mother of Isaac, was barren. 
Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, was barren. Rachel, the mother of Joseph, was barren. Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson, was barren. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, was barren. And Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, was barren. And whenever, we talked about this last week, whenever the, the readers of the New Testament are seeing the beginning of a miraculous birth story, they know something major is going to happen. And this is the story to beat them all. All of these women in the Old Testament and God spoke life where there was no life. And now he takes the ultimate miraculous birth and a virgin has a child. And Mary is not doubting. When she says in, in uh, verse 34, how will this be? I don't think her response is disbelieving. I don't think she's saying, she's saying to God, like, are you for real? How, how can this actually happen? I think she's got questions. I think it's a case of her saying, I'm in, but how is this going to work? And it's okay to have questions like that. It's okay to go to God and say, I don't understand why this is happening or how this is happening, but I'm in. When you read the Psalms, you will see honesty throughout them where they basically scream at God, why do you allow this? And if in your prayer life, you've never really got before God in reverence, but yet in honesty and said, God, why is it happening this way? You've never really broke through to the way the psalmists prayed and the way they wrote. And I think Mary is just saying, how can this work out? I'm in, but how, how will it actually happen? I want clarity. I want answers to my questions. And Mary develops over the next nine months and maybe over the next couple of years, she develops a tactic for dealing with questions and dealing with doubts. And you read about it in Luke chapter 2, 19, where, where it is recorded that Mary treasured up things in her heart and pondered them. If you don't keep a journal or a diary, start doing it. Gentlemen, it is not a thing that girls do. Okay? I think guys maybe sometimes think, well, that's for the girls to keep their diary or their journal. No. You need to keep a record of the encounters you have with God, the times that he speaks the times that he breaks through, the times that you're reading your Bible in the morning and you're sort of churning through the two or three chapters that, that have been allocated for the day and someday all of a sudden something just lights up. You need to write it down. You won't remember it and you will need to be able to go back to it. Especially if you're going on, on a mission with Jesus and you want to make disciples and you want to see him build the church and you're stepping out in obedience and in faith, there will be days that you will desperately need to grab that book and open it and look back two years ago and say, yes, yes, <laughs> we will keep going because we heard God. And Mary was able to deal with her questions and her doubts by treasuring things in her heart and drawing from it when she needed so how is it going to work? What was the answer to the question? Whenever she answered or asked the angel, how, how will this be? How can this thing happen since I am a virgin? There are two things. And I want you to get this because this is class. Two things that together will make it happen. This impossible mission that Mary's being called to. And it is utterly impossible. It is extreme. You could not make it up. The God of all the universe, the, you know, the fact that he has gone to condescend to be an embryo in the womb of a virgin from somewhere no one's ever heard of or cares about, you couldn't make it up. How is he going to make it happen? The answer to the question that Mary asks is given by the angel in verse 35. Verse 30, yeah, verse 35. Two things are going to make it happen. Two things together. 
One is the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit. The only thing that will transform your life is the Holy Spirit. The only thing that will empower you to do what God calls you to do is the Holy Spirit. If you can do it on your own, don't do it. If you are doing it on your own, stop doing it and seek God for his power and his strength. The only thing that can cause Mary to to actually respond to God and be empowered to do more than what she could do herself is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The things in your life that bug you, the things in your character that come up again and again and again and you don't seem to be able to overcome them, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. And to break through in ministry and reach the next level in, in, in any sort of ministry, and any work for God, you, will, you keep on reaching ceilings, you keep on reaching points where you just feel there's a hindrance to actually move through and move into a different level and expand and grow and think outside the box. To do that, you need the Holy Ghost. You need to be filled with the Spirit. When's the last time in your prayers you said, Holy Spirit, come and fill me afresh. Come and pour over me. Come and empower me to do what you're calling me to do. He overcomes the inadequacy. I love the fact that there were a few new people helping out on Friday night who hadn't helped out before and it was great looking at their little faces as they came in, feeling inadequate about how to connect with people. But the Holy Ghost comes and makes it happen. You just place yourself in the position of availability and he comes and empowers it. So one of the things that the angel says to to Mary that, that will cause this to happen is that the Holy Spirit will be upon you. And the second one you've got to look a little bit harder for. It says in verse 37, nothing shall be impossible with God. Nothing shall be impossible with God. More literally it says, for no thing shall be impossible with God. And this is an awful translation that completely misses what's going on here. In Greek, it says, no rhema shall be impossible with God. No rhema. And rhema means word. Rhema means word. Rhema is the word of God that is spoken that brings our chaos back into order. It's the word of God that we have talked about before time and time again, both mainly his written word, but also those moments when he speaks a word into our lives and directs us. No rhema, no word that he has spoken will fail to come to pass. It is not impossible for his word to come to pass. And what you see in in the response of the angel to Mary when she says, how can this be? This thing that you've called me to, that you want to put inside me and birth through me. How is it going to happen? The angel says, do you know what? It's table value number seven. It's the word and the spirit. It's the word and the spirit. And believe me and hear me. And if, you, if you're sick of hearing me saying this, I'll keep saying it again and again. Without the word and the spirit, you can do nothing. There will be no life. These bones will not live. And again, I challenge you, when was the last time that you opened your Bible and you were floored by it? <laughs> Because if it stopped happening, that's like when you're in the hospital and there's a little screen and there's just a flat line. 
and it's a bit scary. The beeps stop and turn into a continuous beep, and there's just a flat line. If you haven't been floored lately by the word, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? We're reading James this week in, the, in our discipleship group, and I'm thinking, <clears throat> we're going to stick in James. Not because, yes, because we're not all reading it every day, including me. But because, because if I've gone through it, I'm just like coloring in and highlighting and thinking this needs talked about for lots of weeks. <laughs> not just one five minute conversation. When's the last time the word floored you? It's the word and the spirit together that make it happen. If you want to see table actually break through to, to a, a bigger level of influence, and start to move more towards what God wants to bring it to, it'll be the Word and the Spirit that will do it in all of our lives, not just on Sunday morning. No rhema, no thing that God has spoken will be impossible. It will not fail to come to pass. And it reminds me of verses in Isaiah 55 that are quite familiar to you probably. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Just like the rain falls and causes the crops to grow so that there's food for the guy that planted them, God says, my word falls on you and it will achieve within you what I want it to achieve. And with all due respect, if it's not achieving within you what God wants it to achieve, you need to go out and stand in the rain a bit more and expose yourself with an open heart. You know, it's easy, it's, it's, it's easy to, to slip into a routine of just reading the Bible and closing it and saying, well, I read the Bible. And not actually posturing yourself before it and saying, Lord, come and change me. Come and change me. It's the word and the spirit together. And Mary gives a model response of what a disciple should say. Again, there's irony here. She she goes to the temple. She doesn't have a lamb, but she's got the lamb of God. She is the mother of Jesus. And yet she's also a disciple of Jesus. Because she says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. How do you respond when God asks you to do something that you don't want to do, that is going to wreck your life? (laughs) She didn't say, no thanks, I've got a better plan. She didn't say, Lord, you have overlooked these other things that I can do. You know, and if I do this, I won't be able to do these things. I'm perfectly good at doing these things. I... Let me do those. She didn't say, you know, Lord, this is really disruptive right now. I'm sort of planning a wedding and I've got important things coming up. She didn't argue with him at all. The word came and she said, may it be to me as you have said. She didn't get arrogant about it either. Do you know what? If Mary had been about today, Mary wouldn't have done this, but some people have just got right onto Facebook, you know, and status update, I am now carrying the Son of God. (laughs) You know, I have been called. I am elevated to this high position above all of the rest of you. She didn't get arrogant about it. She went, she hung out with Elizabeth, and then she went home. She went home, and she allowed that thing to grow within her. 
And she surrendered. I wonder, did Jesus learn the phrase, thy will be done, from his mother? Sitting on her lap as a child, did he learn that as she prayed? Because she was one who had heard God and basically said, may it be as you have said, may your will be done. I wonder, did Jesus learn that from her? Because he then taught that to us and he prayed it himself in the garden of Gethsemane, your will be done. She surrendered and she lost her reputation. And this, is the, this can be the crunch point, losing your reputation. Society has unpleasant names for people like Mary. And society has unpleasant names for people like Jesus, born in that way. Her reputation, gone, in the gutter. When she, once she received this call from God, family were going to desert her, friends were going to desert her. She probably wouldn't be welcome anymore in, in synagogue or in temple because of what had happened to her. But she was willing to lay it on down and just say, I will take this call of God regardless of how my reputation suffers. There's a beautiful scene in, in verse 31 and I'm nearly done. 41. where Elizabeth and Mary meet. And I remember meditating on this and chewing over it a few years ago. Inside Elizabeth, you've got John the Baptist. Inside Mary, you've got Jesus. Inside Elizabeth, you have the old covenant. You have the last prophet of the old covenant. And inside Mary, you've got the new covenant. You've got Jesus. And all the history that goes before this... I'm sure people wondered where will they, when they read in Jeremiah about the new covenant, I'm sure they wondered where will the old covenant and the new covenant meet? Where will be the point of crossover from one to the other? And people probably had these ideas that the two covenants, the old and the new, would meet maybe in the temple, maybe in the palace, maybe in the sky in some glorious way. But God causes it, and you couldn't make this up. God causes the old covenant and the new covenant to meet in the wombs of two insignificant women, one of them barren, one of them a virgin, and boom, the covenants meet. And John worships Jesus. I don't know how that happened or what it looked like, but John starts doing somersaults in Elizabeth's womb whenever he sees or whenever he becomes aware that Jesus is nearby. And people think women are less significant than men. And the church fails to, to utilize women to their strengths and to allow them to teach and to allow them to lead and allow them to do things. And here God brings the covenants together in the wombs of two insignificant women who should not have been having children, either of them. It's class. This is not the last that we see of Mary. In John 2, she's at the wedding of Cana and she says to the servants, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. In John 19, she's at the cross. She doesn't run away. Peter runs away. Peter's gone. And a lot of the other disciples are gone. John's there and Mary's there. She doesn't leave. She doesn't walk away when she doesn't understand what's going on. In Acts 1 and 2, she's in the upper room. And again, I wonder what it was like for Mary when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And once again, she had God dwelling inside her. She was the only one there who could say, I felt this before. <laughs> I've had this feeling before of God living in me. You guys are all experiencing the Holy Spirit and the presence of God inside you for the first time. I have felt this before. This is not a new thing. He's back. And she's this wonderful example of faith and discipleship. 
nobody from nowhere who will say yes to God. And just as, as we finish, what has he called you to do that seems impossible? And what, has he, what does he want to birth within you that you think, no, I can't do that? We're seeing things born here. We're seeing new ministries develop and there's conversations going on with various people and there's new embryos being deposited. We all have wombs. Gentlemen, you've got a womb, okay? You've got a womb as well. You've got inside you something that that can receive a word from God. And I, I can picture God coming up to people in here and just saying, I've got this thing and it's precious to me. Can I put it inside you? Would you open up your heart and let me put this inside you and allow it to grow inside you? Allow the gestation period and go through the discomfort of carrying this thing. All the discomforts of pregnancy that many of you know a lot about. Go through the discomfort of carrying this thing. Go through the discomfort of bringing it to birth. Anything that is worth birthing for God will hurt. It'll hurt. It'll probably involve loss of reputation. But what is it? What is it? And you know God is coming up to you and he's just poking you and saying, look, look, I'd love to put this in you and I'd love you to carry this. I'd love to birth it within you. I need a womb. Are there any available wombs that would take this and allow it to grow? And it could involve losing your reputation, could involve losing your money, could involve your life following a path that's not the path you want. You might have in your mind some great thing that you'd love to do for God and God might come along and say, listen, that's that's a noble aspiration, but I want you to take this. I want you to take this and allow this to be born within you. What will we allow him to birth here? Are you finished? Are you finished because we've got Sunday morning gatherings and we've got a building to meet in? Are you finished? Because God ain't finished. You've got lots of little embryos and he just needs to implant them somewhere. Who's going to receive them? And not allow their history or their lack of supposed ability to prevent him from doing what he wants. Can we pray? Father, thank you.